Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This week on the Quarterdeck, we continue our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division, 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. And this week, we're going to go ahead and focus on the actual operation design on what the division was doing in order to make its way now that they crossed that border in Kuwait. They've already secured the oil field, and now they're making their way all the way into Baghdad. In our hero highlights this week, we take a look at the Medal of Honor citation of Private George Phillips, United States Marine Corps. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's, it's time for the gunny. Gunny, gunny, gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get in line right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to the quarter deck. I am your host, Miguel, the Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you, Phil. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Quarter Deck. Today happens to be a very, very special day of the year. It marks one of the many birthdays that we celebrate here in our household. Today is the 22nd of February. And back in 1997, our daughter, Angelica Sines, was born on board Cam Pendleton, California. So, yes, she is a Cam Pendleton baby. So, big shout out to you. Happy birthday and have a great, amazing day. And here's to many, many more. So, if you guys can believe it, man, we're already... The 22nd of February, so we're almost done with this month already, and it just seems like yesterday that we started the month of February. But wow, it is truly, truly amazing how fast this month is going by, and it's flying by, and before we know it, we're going to be in March. One of the many things that I know that everybody has been hearing on the news, and earlier this month, here in California, a... Marine helicopter, a CH-53 Super Stallion, was flying from Las Vegas to Miramar in California, and something happened. Don't know. They're doing the investigation and everything that's going on. However, the helicopter ended up crashing over there in the Laguna Mountains over there by Julian in that forest area. So if any of you guys have driven through there, you guys know that there's a lot of mountains and all that stuff. And it didn't help any that during that time that they were making their trip back to Miramar, California that the weather was not really cooperative at all. A lot of fog, snow, it was cold. And any of you that have ridden on a CH-53 Super Stallion helicopter know that, man, those things are massive. And, you know, they fly long distances because we used to use those to actually carry our housers anytime that we did any kind of raid when we had to go into any kind of terrain where we could not drive our trucks into. But one of the things that I can remember directly about that is that whenever we got into that helicopter, you could see hydraulic fluid leaking everywhere inside that helicopter from the lines and all that stuff. And one of the things that we used to always ask the crew of the CH-53 was, hey, it's leaking. Is that going to be a, a good thing? And, you know, do we need to go back or something? And he's like, look, as long as you see hydraulic fluid, everything's good to go. The minute you see that there's no fluid, that it stops let us know because now we have an issue. We have a problem. But in the news, it's been daily that they have been following up on that story. And last week they 
announced that the Marines were found. You know, unfortunately, all of them did pass away. And let's take a listen real quick to this news broadcast that they're sharing with us about what they found out about the Marines and when they actually found out who they were and their names. This afternoon, we now know the names of the five Marines killed in a helicopter crash in the East County on Tuesday. It's our top story here on The Four. I'm Heather Myers. I'm Carlo Cicchetto. The military released their identities and photographs just hours ago. They are Lance Corporal Donovan Davis, just 21 years old from Kansas. He was promoted to Lance Corporal on January 1st. Also, 23-year-old Sergeant Alec Lang Langan from Chandler, Arizona. He enlisted in 2017. He was a decorated Marine with five medals and two ribbons from the military. Captain Benjamin Moulton was a commissioned officer from Idaho. He was 27 years old. And 26-year-old Captain Jack Casey was from New Hampshire. He was promoted to captain in September of last year. Also on board, 28-year-old Captain Miguel Nava from Michigan. Nava served since 2017 and was promoted to captain in 2021. CBS 8's Kelly Hessel joins us live from MCS Miramar. She spoke to the family of Sergeant Alec Langan and has their heartbreaking story. Kelly. That's right. It was a very emotional interview. I spoke to the sister of Sergeant Alec Langan uh, from their family's home in Phoenix. Now, they were both actually born here in San Diego, and she says that she wants the world to know her brother was special, that he wasn't just an exceptional Marine, that he was also an exceptional brother, son, husband, and friend. Cell phone video of Sergeant Alec Langan, a crew chief inside a CH-53E helicopter, the same kind of aircraft he was in Tuesday when it crashed in Pine Valley, killing him and four fellow Marines. Alec's sister Elizabeth says her boyfriend broke the news to her. I just knew something was wrong and that he told me Alec had been in a crash and all I remember was holding him and he had to hold me up and I just knew at that point that I was never going to see him again. Elizabeth says her family is devastated. It was just one month ago they gathered in Sedona to celebrate as Alec married the love of his life, Casey. He's just a rock. He was a rock for our family. He was a rock for Casey. Um, he was a rock for so many men um, in the Marines and no. I know that he's going to have a big it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big hole and it's never going to be the same without him. She says her brother was funny, smart and kind. He played the drums in school. He refereed soccer, even though she says he was terrible at soccer. Even if it's something he's not good at, he's going to do it. And he's going to do it Alex's way with a smile on his face. She says his tight knit group of friends went off to join different branches of the military. Alec followed in his father's footsteps and fulfilled his dream of becoming a Marine. Um, just gonna miss so much about him I can't I can't even put it into words and I just want people to know that he died doing what he loved I know that he didn't want to leave any of us but that he's going to be there protecting us for the rest of our lives and she told me in just a couple of months, Alec was supposed to be transferring, transferring that is, to another military base where he wouldn't be doing the same kind of training exercises uh, that he was here. Uh, she says, uh, hug your loved ones tighter. Tell them how much they mean to you. Heather and Carlo. Gosh, it is just so heartbreaking to hear her story. And Kelly, these Marines are from all over the country. Uh, are we hearing from any other friends or family members at this time? 
That's right. We are hearing from uh, the family or the uh, friends of Miguel Nava, Captain Miguel Nava, that is. Uh, we do have some photos that we'd like to share with you. Uh, he leaves behind a wife and a son. Before he became a helicopter pilot, uh, he grew up in Michigan. He played football and soccer. He was on the student council. He would often return to his old school to mentor other students. Uh, so he was looked at as a true leader and really a role model. So obviously his family and friends are hurting today as well. Uh, it was clear that uh, he certainly touched the lives of those who knew him. Our hearts go out to all of the friends and family of those lost in this terrible crash on Tuesday. Kelly Hessedal reporting live for us. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you to CBS 8 San Diego for that outstanding story in brief remembrance of those Marines that lost their life in that helicopter crash out there in California. Situations like this, you know, especially with uh, not intentional, but unintentional accidents do happen in everyday training whenever the military, uh, the Marines is the only thing that I can speak for because I spent over 20 years in the service, but accidents like this happen all the time. I can think back and I remember when I got back from the drill field in 2007, we started doing training in 511. I was with Tango Battery at the time. And we started doing training with the new weapon system that the Marine Corps was about to adapt to have the artillery be able to use in the Marine Corps as well. The new HIMAR systems, the rocket launching system that they used, that the Army's had this for many, many years before, but the Marine Corps had adapted it and made it so that the Marine Corps would be able to use it in an amphibious environment and be able to get in and get out quickly. Well, long story short here. We started our training with this new weapon systems, you know, learning how to use it, how to load it, how to do all that stuff. And all the Marines that were being taught exactly how to be able to drive this vehicle. Now, it wasn't anything different. It was basically almost like a small truck with a big giant box in the back of it that held uh, six rockets in the back of it. And we had to do training with that in order for the Marines to understand exactly how to drive it and daytime, nighttime, all those things. And we were training down there in Camp Pendleton, California, and we were going down there to AFA-1, which those of you that are down or been to Camp Pendleton, California, you know that AFA-1 is an artillery uh, firing area that is on top of a mountain going basically down another steep mountain to get to the firing position where we were going to be firing. Now, we were displaced, moved from our location, for those of you that don't know exactly what that means. And we were told that we were about to move into that firing position. And it was maybe about, I want to say about an hour and a half, two hour drive from our location. Now, the reason it takes that long is because, you know, we don't drive at mock speed to get to point A to point B. We have to go at a slower pace, especially when you're driving in pitch darkness, no lights, no nothing with night vision goggles on. It takes a little longer to get to point A to point B. Well, we're driving and we get to the bottom base of the mountain where we're getting ready to start going up. Now, I was in second platoon, so first platoon had gone in front of us, and they were going out there. And the platoon sergeant that was leading them, a good friend of mine, he was up there, and he was, you know, taking them where they needed to go. Now, all of a sudden, the, everything stopped. There was another battery that was moving um, in front of us, and we were behind them, and we stopped at the base of the mountain, and everything ceased. There was no movement, nothing else. And the next thing that I know is I got out of my vehicle, went up to the, the lead vehicles that was down there on the base of the mountain, and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? Why are we stopping? And the first thing that he told me was like, hey, one of those new vehicles, you know, that they have rolled off the mountain. And first thing that I thought, I was like, oh, okay, which vehicle was it? Which crew was it that was down there that this happened to? And, you know, 
I found out later on that it was the actual vehicle that uh, we had Staff Sergeant Santiago, which we later came to call Flip Brick because he decided to flip one of the vehicles in the mountain. Now, what happened is that when that road goes up towards that AFA, there is basically just a drop. There's no rails. There's nothing else that prevent anything from going over the side. The driver had gotten a little too close to the edge, and the actual uh, little drop gave way a little bit, and they rolled down the hill. Now, they went down maybe about, I want to say about almost 800 meters down the mountain, and a tree stopped them from going all the way down. Now, if that tree had not been there, that vehicle would have gone all the way down, and those Marines would have probably been lost. So luckily, they were not injured extremely. You know, a couple of bruised ribs here and there, a broken leg, but that was it. But I remember that I was asking Staff Sergeant Santiago, like, hey, you know, what happened? Because when the vehicle rolled over, there was nothing that they could see that the convoy in front of them was way ahead of them because they were the last vehicle in the convoy. So when they rolled down the hill, nobody saw them. It wasn't until the platoon sergeant was trying to communicate with them over the radio because he was further back and he said, hey, you know, they weren't, they're not answering the radio. And the one thing that he tells me that he remembers the most is that he made his way up the mountain. He doesn't know how he made it up. He doesn't know how he got up there so quickly, but he ended up having two flashlights that he had in his hand. And he said that he could just picture himself that coming up the side of the mountain, those of you that have seen the movie The Rock, know that when he's standing there on top of Alcatraz and he's moving the flares to the left and right to get the attention of the airplane that's coming in there to blow it up, to not blow it up, he said that's what he looked like. He had those two things in his hand. He was waving it back and forth trying to get the attention of the platoon start. And once he did, they were able to stop and then assess the situation, call it in, and then they were able to get people down there to actually help them out there. The corpsman got there quickly. They got Marines down there. They were able to get them out, and the vehicle stayed there for at least about three weeks after that until they did an investigation and all that stuff and everything else. And luckily, you know, they were okay. Nothing happened to them and stuff. But incidents like this happen, you know, all the time. And a lot of time, a lot of people really don't find out about them because it's not that big of a story unless there was casualties or fatalities in that situation. So my heart goes out to the families of these Marines, these five Marines that are down there, and, you know, hoping that they are able to you know, find the pieces they need to and understand that they died doing what they love to do as Marines and everything like that. But it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's sad that things like this do happen, but unfortunately, you know, you know, we're human. We make mistakes, we make errors and the things that we use, the vehicles, the helicopters, all those things do have sometimes certain issues that, that they have that makes things harder and especially if, you know, those things are put together now with Mother Nature when you can't really see what's going on. So especially I can imagine that in an aircraft that when you're flying down there, I'm pretty sure you they have their radars or whatever they use in order to see where they're going. But, I mean, I'm not in the air wing. I don't know what they do. All I know is that they're able to kind of uh, follow their flight plan and get to where they're going and stuff and everything. And whatever altitude they're at, you know, that's the altitude that they are. But I'm pretty sure it's pretty easy to get disoriented and, you know, be pointing in the wrong direction. I mean, look back and what happened with Kobe when that helicopter crashed. They got disoriented too as well because of bad weather. That's what happened and stuff and everything. So let's take a little bit of time and just remember them and, you know, say a couple of prayers for their family and keep them in our thoughts and in our prayers. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel Signs Photography. 
Miguel Sainz is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings, family portraits, and special events. With years of experience and a creative eye, Miguel Sainz will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come. Whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album, a unique family portrait, or a professional headshot for your business, Miguel Sainz Photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life. From the initial consultation to the final product, Miguel Sainz will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Sainz Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel Sainz Photography. Visit Miguel Sainz Photography online at miguelsignsphotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. The last week in our reading of our book with the First Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, we talked about how the Iraqi army was reacting to everything that the division was actually doing. What was their plan? What were they actually doing? All that stuff. And, you know, it just goes to show you that no matter what force it is or what country it may be, they know the reputation of the United States Marine Corps and the First Marine Division was no different in what they were conducting and the traditions and the history of the way that that division fights in combat. So this week, we're going to take a look at, you know, the operational design. How was everything designed for it to work and stuff? And was it working? Was it working the way that it was intended to do? And so how was the division actually handling all this stuff? So let's go ahead and get into this and see exactly what the division was conducting during this time. The division continued to push to the Tigris in route to Baghdad. Not simply a movement to contact, the route and the speed of the maneuvers were designed to have specific effects on the enemy. Their primary effect was to keep the forces on the south of the east side of Baghdad from withdrawing into the city. If Iraqis were allowed to mass in the urban area, the coalition main effort, the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division, would be delayed. Keeping the Iraqi forces out of the urban area would be achieved by posing a credible threat to Baghdad from the east, on the north side of the Tigris River, a second desired effect was to be catalyst for the surrender or collapse of the remaining divisions of the 4th Corps and the Baghdad RG divisions by obtaining positional advantages astride their single lifeline to Baghdad. Getting the division across the Tigris River and astride Highway 6 would satisfy both of these strategic objectives. There were a number of secondary effects that the division sought as well. The division had achieved operational surprise by beginning its attack on up Highway 1, and if the enemy reacted, unexpected avenue of approach by repositioning forces, those forces would be exposed to air interdiction. So likewise, the effect of the maneuvers against the Baghdad RG division and turning its defensive to the north and to the west would expose its indirect fire assets to air interdiction. The isolation of the entire southern region, and which was Al-Qut, Anazaria, Al-Bazara, and beyond from Baghdad would also greatly improve the stabilization environment. Liberating the Iraqi people and transitioning to a representative government required removing the influence of the Baghdad regime. This was not possible as long as regime enforcers could drive from Baghdad to Barjra through the entirely regime-controlled 
territory. The division clearly understood and quickly way to destroy the regime or the snake was to sever its head, which was Baghdad. Thus, any division operations south of the Tigris River were not as potentially decisive as an attack into the heart of the regime's base of power. Because of the controlized nature of the regime and its limited span of control, the Division G2 assessed that defending the enemy forces to the south in detail would be largely accomplished once the 1st Marine Division was between them and Baghdad. With Highway 1 bridge secure, the division then successfully expanded its Euphrates River uh, bridgehead. Although not much herald, the seizure of the uncontested Euphrates River crossing by the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division was an operational victory almost on par with the seizure of the critical oil notes. Once crossed, the 1st Marine Division's elements of the bridgehead put the division almost a third of the way into Baghdad in a matter of less than three days. Now, access to Highway 1 over the Western Bridges and across to Highway 7 over the Eastern An-Nazaria Bridges would enable the division to fix and bypass the Baghdad RG Division, isolating it and the rest of the Iraq 3rd and 4th RA Corps. The soldiers of the Iraqi 10th Armored Division may not have yet realized it, but they had already been operationally defeated with 3rd LAR Battalion began to wind its way up into the incomplete highway. Leading the division's attack of Highway 1, Wolfpack had planned to do a detailed route reconnaissance of both the division's primary and secondary routes. When Chaos contacted Wolfpack 6, Lieutenant Colonel Clardy, the afternoon of 23 March, however, his message was clear. 3rd LAR was to drive hard up Highway 1 and get into the Hantash airstrip and Highway 27 intersection as rapidly as possible. Exploitation of alternate routes would come later. The CG knew that the enemy had disoriented by the rapid pace of Blue Diamond's advance and wanted to exploit this before the enemy realized the magnitude of the force that was coming up the unfinished highway. RCT-5 would follow the trace of 3rd LER, ready to quickly exploit the attack to seize the Hantouche Highway airfield, and then turn and go all the way to the Tigers River through the previously identified seam of the enemy's defenses. Opening the Hartouche airstrip would allow for all the rapid resupply of fuel by KC-130 aircraft without clogging the single roadway and using the refueling trucks. Once refueled, the division would continue to feint up Highway 1, but would change the direction of its attack on Highway 27 and strike northeast along the seam, directly for an Anamaria bridge across the Tigris River. An Iraqi pontoon bridge 35 kilometers upriver at AZ Zubadia would serve as an alternative crossing site. RCT-1 would attack up Highway 7, clearing preliminary resistance there and fixing the Baghdad RG Infantry Division in Al-Qut. RCT-7, meanwhile, would follow the trace of RCT-5, prepared to continue the attack once the north side of the Tigris, after cleaning up what's left of the Baghdad RG Infantry Division. RCT-7 would turn to the east with a final destination into Baghdad. 
So as we can see, the division is making its way all the way into Baghdad because just like they said, if we think about it, really, what is the best way to actually defeat an enemy? Cut off the head of the snake, right? Just the way that they mentioned it to make sure they did that. And for the Republican Guard, the Iraqi forces that were actually there surrounding Baghdad to protect their city, this was what the division was planning to do. Get in there, defeat them, get them out of the way. And this was before that they could actually retreat going into the city, which eventually that's what they ended up doing. But, you know, throughout the days that followed that, and we're going to see this a little bit later on once we read a little more into our book, but we're going to see how the division was letting the people of Baghdad know that, hey, that you, you need to leave Baghdad. If you're still there, you're going to be considered to be hostile because the division, the division was noticing that the Republican Guard was leaving their positions and they were heading into Baghdad. And now they were dressed in civilian attire. So that was going to make it a little bit more difficult for the division and the Marines to actually understand and realize who the heck is the enemy, who is the actual enemy that is there. Because the country of Iraq, individuals are allowed to have a gun in their household. So there was individuals walking around with weapons strapped to their back, or they had them in the front when they were walking around. So that made it a little bit more difficult for us to actually realize and you know try to identify who the heck is the enemy and who's not. So that's what the division was actually doing, all that stuff and everything. And next week, we're going to take a look at how the 23 March continued forward and what Wolfpack, what they find that they find their prey and now they're making their way through Baghdad to be able to secure that city for the first Marine division hero, hero highlight private George Phillips, United States Marine Corps for sacrificing his life on Iwo Jima. Private George Phillips was posthumously awarded the medal of honor. Private Phillips was born in Bates County, Missouri, 14 July, 1926 and worked on the railroad before enlisting in the Marine Corps on 25 April 1944. The decoration was received by his uncle, with whom Private Phillips had formerly resided. Initially buried in the 5th Marine Division Cemetery on Iwo Jima, Private Phillips remains where re-entered in Bethel Cemetery, Labidi, Missouri in 1948. The Quarterdeck this week, we found out how the division now is still continuing their attack heading towards Baghdad and how quickly the division was moving up there. Now, one of the things that I can remember is just how fast the pace was for us. Once we crossed that border from Kuwait and headed into Iraq, man, it was such a fast pace. And it's just like the way that they're talking about it's making it seem that the division is just moving and moving and moving. But in reality, unless you were there on the ground, you're not going to really understand how the lack of sleep and the tempo that you have, especially with the adrenaline and everything that's going on, it just kicks in and your body just, you know, keeps moving. That's just the way that it goes. So it's just like the division is doing now, but it's starting to get a little bit more interesting and we're going to continue to focus on that just a little bit more as we continue to go through there because on March 23rd, there's other things that occurred and then it happened that we're going to go over and you guys are going to be able to see exactly a little bit more detail. And here in the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to lock on to go ahead and get one of our guests to come on the podcast. One of the Marines that was actually deployed with me in Iraq during 2003. So we can go ahead and talk a little bit about our experiences and his experience as we actually headed into country. So stand by for that. I will let you guys know the week prior when we get ready to have him on there. 
and I will go ahead and post a special little bulletin podcast to make sure that you're reminded so that way you can make sure that you download our podcast to ensure that you don't miss that interview and that conversation that we're going to have regarding everything going on in Iraq. Every week we continue on reading our hero highlights, and this week, you know, it was no difference. We read about Private George Phillips of the Marine Corps and what he did to sacrifice himself at Iwo Jima. I mean, Iwo Jima is a very, very well-known battle, and everybody knows that battle because of the iconic picture that was taken of the Marines raising the flag there on top of Iwo Jima. So many Marines lost their lives there and sacrificed themselves because of what they did there. And it was just a tremendous, tremendous, I won't say it was an honor to die when you were in combat, but the Marines did what they had to do to ensure that the Marines were taken care of to their left and to the right and put their own life aside to make sure that they continued to fight and make sure that they were doing the things that Marines do. They fight. And they continue to attack the enemy until they annihilate them and make their way through to secure the area, no matter what it is that they were assigned to. And he was no difference. And even today, the Marines are Marines, and that is what they do. And let's not forget to take a little minute to say a quick prayer for those five Marines that lost their lives in that helicopter crash down here in California. And that we remember their families, their spouses, their children, their kids, all that stuff and everything. Take care a little bit of time. And just remember them because their sacrifice is not going to be forgotten. Even though it occurred in a training environment down here in CONUS, it doesn't really matter. So let's not forget about them and take a little bit of time for them to make sure that we remember what they did and everything they did for our country with them being part of the United States Marine Corps. Lastly, I want to go ahead and take the opportunity again to thank you guys for tuning into the podcast every single week. Listening to me, all the likes and everything are greatly, greatly appreciated. If you haven't subscribed, make sure that you subscribe on the podcast to ensure that you're notified every single week once the new episode is posted. And this way you can go ahead and get it downloaded and make sure you don't miss any single week. And just like a reminder, I want to make sure you guys remember that we're going to have a guest here pretty soon. And I want to make sure that you guys do not miss that episode because it's going to be a very, very interesting conversation. And we're going to go ahead and bring you guys into our world of what we went through as we were heading into Iraq down there in 2003 with the 1st Marine Division. Also, do not forget that we have our Facebook page, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Signs. And as a reminder, it is currently being worked and getting ready to be posted that the YouTube channel is going to go ahead and go online here fairly soon. And I will go ahead and put it on the Facebook page and the link on there so you guys are aware of what the channel, when it's available, so you can tune into the video podcasting as well to ensure that we stay up to date on everything going on every single week. So again, have a great weekend. Enjoy the time with your family. And until next week, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Get out the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic.